This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. My guest today is a pianist who has been lauded by critics for playing with intelligence, poetry and proportion. Tanya Bannister is the co-founder of both the Alpenkammer Music in Austria and the Roadmaps Festival in New York, and her career has taken her to many of the world's great concert halls, from Carnegie Hall in New York to the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. She's also a past winner of two different prestigious international piano competitions, including the Concert Artist Skill Competition in New York, an organisation of which she is now the president. All of this makes her an ideal choice for why she is now in Australia, to be one of the jurists of the Sydney International Piano Competition, which kicks off this week and runs through until the 22nd of July. I'm delighted that Tanya has interrupted her preparations for the competition to be in conversation with me today. Tanya Bannister, welcome to MBS Fine Music Sydney. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, Tanya, you were born in Hong Kong, educated in London, Italy, Germany, New York. You've just flown in from Austria. Where do you call home? <laughs> yes, I call New York my home, which is the melting pot and appropriate for how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> but you have just come from the Alpenkammer Music Festival, which is still ongoing. Even yeah, you've left it's still it behind. continuing. I've never, ever left it. It's a, it's a festival, chamber music festival that I founded 15 years ago. So I organized some bad weather on my departure and um, and it's running very smoothly without me. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, at least you'll be able to settle in one place for the next few weeks here in Sydney with the competition. Yes. Um, so, so tell me how you've come to be involved with the piano competition here. I'm here with Alistair Tate, who runs Young Classical Artist Trust in London. And I've known Piers Lane actually since when I was in the Academy over 20 years ago. I don't want to name the dates. Um, <laughs> and we are very supportive of young emerging musicians and are actually giving a package to the winners, um, introducing them to people in the industry and giving them some career advice to really capitalize on their win once that happens ah. at the end of the competition. So, yeah, so, so there's no point in just winning a competition. You've got to then make uh, full That's use of just that opportunity. Beginning. That's once, just the beginning. Yeah, once you've won the competition, that's unfortunately not the, you know, the end of it all. It's the beginning of it all. <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> so what is the process of being a juror? What does that actually look like? It involves listening to a ton of pianists yeah. from morning to night, um, which is Because it be is wonderful. morning till night, isn't it? It is, for at least for the first few rounds until I think the semifinals finishes. Mm. I think we're just listening for real communicators and pianists that are really going to go out into the world and be communicative and impactful for many different audiences, I think, mm. going forward. Because it must be such a subjective thing. So it must be a very challenging uh, thing to do. Oh, well, I'll let you know in three weeks when it's, <laughs> it's over. But I think generally the ones that are communicative are powerfully so. There are not so many of them. And mm. so I think it should be at least the top six, you know, top 15 should be fairly clear. Right. Because also they're all playing different repertoire, won't they? They are. So... They are. But in the end, I think it really comes down to some stage presence. Yeah. Um, you know, the way they communicate their music uh, out into the audience um, and how they also program, which will be really interesting. And yes, really so important. the choice of music is, is The choice of music repertoire. is really critical in, in today's climate for being a concert pianist. Well, we have to have our first track of music. And uh, you've got a lovely selection for us today. And I'm glad to say they are all performed by you, which is a <laughs> wonderful thing. I always love it when artists choose their own work. So we're starting with some Chopin. So tell me about this piece and uh, and why you've wanted us to hear this one. Well, the Chopin Second Piano Concerto is really one of my favourite pieces. And I think it's a concerto I've played more than any other. 
And this is in a chamber format uh, with a string quintet, which is a double bass and quartet and piano. So, you know, all of the wonderful wind instruments in the concerto, including the lovely bassoon solo that ends the slow movement is taken on by the cello in this case. And it was arranged by a few musicians, friends of mine, you know, based off actually a Polish chamber version that already exists. I've very much enjoyed doing this piece in such a supple chamber arrangement. Part of the opening movement of Chopin's second piano concerto, uh, not performed by full orchestra, but performed by a string quintet. Claudio Aimone Marsan and Michi Wianco playing the violins, Max Mandel the viola, Raman Marakrishnan the cello, and the double bass played by Kurt Muroki. The pianist, well, the pianist is my guest in conversation today, Tanya Bannister. So, Tanya, that appears on an album you've titled Intimate Piano Concertos. Uh, intimate, I guess, because they're all chamber arrangements, exactly. like the one we've just heard. 
Yes. So how did you decide which concertos to feature on that album? Well, I picked pieces that worked well um, with this combination of instruments and, you know, music that I also really love and was playing frequently at that time. Is it different playing in that chamber environment, the same concerto compared to when you've played it with an orchestra? It is different. Obviously, the colours are very different. Um, There are benefits of both. Um, And what I love about the chamber version is that you can really be communicative in how you might change. I mean, Chopin Concerto is actually one of the most difficult to play with orchestra because the conductor has to lead so many subtle tempo changes, which are very difficult with the filigree piano passages that you'll hear. But in a chamber version, you know, the pianist can lead it more. And so it's actually in some ways, you know, more fun and it's easier to engage with everybody. So tell me about your memories of taking up the piano for the first time. How old were you? I was four and my mother at the time was learning piano and I would listen to her practice and sleep under her chair. And I think I went to the piano and kept very curiously banging and playing on the instrument. And I think they saw me do that and they thought, well, let's get her some lessons so she sounds a bit better. And uh, that's, you know, where it all began. Did you take to it fairly quickly, do you think? I, yes, I did. So when I was five and a half, I remember my piano teacher telling me at, the, at a little competition in Hong Kong to go up and bow. And so I did. And I went up to the piano and I bowed deeply to the piano with the my piano. bottom to the audience. <laughs> and I think I was competing with, you know, this little Shostakovich waltz with around, you know, 150 amazing Chinese pianists. And I won the competition. And it was actually someone that eventually mentored me. It was Christopher Elton, who... Oh, wow who it was head of keyboard at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And so from that point on, he very much took care of me as a pianist and as a mentor. So, yeah. Did he keep reminding you about bowing to the piano rather than bowing to the audience? <laughs> I don't think he even remembers that one. I think. <laughs> Something that you've kept in your mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was about me and the piano and the music and the communion of that. So I didn't understand why people were laughing. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> but you're saying five and a half or so. You, I was you five. Already, I was, yeah, five. I was five. Goodness me. So are you already, you or your parents already sort of conscious that you were a sort of a cut above other kids I of your age? I don't think they knew. But, you know, I had, you know, a mother that was you know, diligent about making sure I was prepared, I suppose. And I think I was fairly expressive even at that age. And so somehow I won it. I still have the comment sheet from that. (laughs) It's quite a detailed comment sheet. And um, yeah, that's how it all began. So when does it become clear that you want to make this your career? It was pretty early on. I mean, I can't remember if it was something that was presented to me as an option. Well, you're, you know, you have some talent. Do you really want to do this? Because so much work was involved, you Mm. know. I mean, from seven, eight, I was already doing many hours a day. All my schools were picked so that I would have enough time to practice. So you leave Hong Kong to go to the Royal Academy in London? Or is there no, inter- don't, is there even, don't even step? ask me my track of where I've been. because I went to. to uh, you, it'll be hard to catch me, yeah. I went to the Academy. I went to study with an amazing pianist called Sakura Koshta in Kansas. And then I came back to the Academy for a year. I went on to this amazing Academy in Italy. And then I went to Yale where they have a fantastic music school and studied with Claude Frank. And then I went back to the Academy. And anyway. It's, it's a long story. <laughs> but, but, the, but the academy sounds like it was home base in that process. Kind of. I kept bouncing back there, yes, for about a year or two. So how, how old are you when you go to London? I was there when I was just turned 17. That's very young. Yeah, it was. Home. Did, did you, your mother didn't go with you anyway? No, no. I basically have lived alone, you know, since I was 14, 13, just all from piano. You know, so I grew up too quickly and then I'm still haven't grown up in many other ways still now. So, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so tell me about those opportunities, like, you know, bouncing, as you said, to and from the Royal Academy to all these other things. How does that work? You're just going to put that degree on, on hold or is that part of, of the Royal Academy degree, then the experience to um, well, send you all to all these I, places? Yeah, I, I went to Italy and I did kind of the post-grad work and then I went to Yale and I did a master's, which wasn't really a master's because I hadn't finished my bachelor's. And so then I, I received that on condition that I would finish my bachelor's at the academy and they let me finish that in two years somehow. Mm. So I did everything backwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's ideal. Well, something that is not backwards is our next piece of music and we're uh, venturing into quite a contemporary piece now, Tanya. What's this one? Oh, this one is by Christopher Theophanides, uh, who's a wonderful American composer, actually. He also teaches at Yale. Um, and this is All Dreams Begin With the Horizon, which is, you know, very um, nostalgic uh, dreamy work and um, I recorded this actually when I was pregnant with my son I don't know what 15 years ago I suppose <laughs> and it's it's just it's just something that people audiences really enjoy listening to begin with the horizon. A wonderful work from Christopher Theophanidis. Uh, the pianist there, Tanya Bannister. And Tanya is my guest in conversation today. Tanya, that's a lovely title of the album. This is the story she began. Where, where does that title come from? 
Well, it's actually a work written by uh, Suzanne Farron, who's a composer friend of mine, and that was the title of her work. So and that was the title the, track, yeah. It was the title track. So I, I just loved that concept, mm. and that became the title of the CD. And that album is, is a sort of an album of more contemporary works. Yes. Uh, you, you, you enjoy playing them, don't you? I mean, I think it's a really important part of being a pianist is is making sure that you're advocating and playing contemporaries of, you know, yourself. Otherwise, there's there's not going to be any sifting or growth in the repertoire um, going forward. So it's something I feel very passionately about, you know, playing pieces by living composers. Mm. Were these ones pieces that had been played before or were they written um, No, or? quite a few of them were written for me, actually. Mm. And so I got to premiere them on the CD. And I think now they've really, a lot of them have become quite standard repertoire and people play them quite a lot. I'm happy that I got the first shot at it. <laughs> <laughs> if they're written for you, I mean, is there any element of collaboration in that? Uh, or do they just Sometimes. present you the piece and say, here it is, ta-da. Yes, there is collaboration in that. They're in a few of the pieces on this album, actually, I did you know, look at the work with a composer and give some kind of insight into how it might be for the pianist. Mm. But they're all such pros and wrote so beautifully for the piano, you know, that not much feedback was required. Have you composed yourself at all? No. I mean, other than little cadenzas on piano concertos and things like that. Part of the the business. That is not one of my fortes, yes. (laughs) You leave it to others. Yes. Now, I mentioned at the top that you were the past winner of two international piano competitions. And so coming back to the Sydney competition, which you're you're a juror of, um, what sort of impact did that have on your career? I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, at the top of the program, that it's just the beginning. You know, competitions are in a way, have less impact than they might have 20 years ago. Really? Yes. I think that these days, you know, especially in America, in the market in America, there are not as many piano series as there were before. So, you know, the the bigger main series are generally given to well-known pianists. And now the younger generation of pianists that are coming up are, of course, there's work out there for them. But, you know, they have to be a little bit more creative and potentially play on series that are are not purely classical, for example. Mm. And so, you know, they have to think about not just playing the classical standard repertoire, but framing their music in a way that can communicate to maybe audiences that might not initially think that they have a connection to classical music. Mm. But that obviously wasn't your experience 20 years ago. There was more work available. Yes. I mean, it's it's always been a difficult profession. Absolutely. And so, you know, winning a competition is definitely helpful mm. and important, but it's it's not going to guarantee a long term career because once you have started a career, you have to be asked back. Really, careers are built on being asked back. So how do you get asked back? Um, so that's the, you know. So how do you get asked back? <laughs> I think you have to be thoughtful to audiences. You have to be thoughtful of the presenters by mm. programming. Be You have to have soft skills like, you know, emailing people back on time and being kind to the people that pick you up at the airport, um, speaking eloquently to audiences and just generally being generous mm. towards your audience. That's fascinating. So it is a, it is a whole package. You are it's a whole package. You are a showman. Or a, you are. You're, you are giving. Without being Liberace. <laughs> but it, it really is like that. So yeah. just playing beautifully is a given. But on top of that, there has to be a personality that people can be drawn to and be entertained by, in a sense. Tell me more about what you were talking about at the beginning of the program with um, helping to mentor these, the winners or, or, or the, not just the winner, but perhaps the the, the top tier of, of this competition. Yeah. Ex- explore more how you're 
it, obviously it's it's more than just sitting down and telling them what you've just told me now. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you have to, you know, have conversations with real experts in the field in terms of who's going to be, it depends on who wins in terms of where they're they're from also, their market that they're focusing on Mm. and what the specifics are on the market that might be relevant to to their growth as a whole package, not just as a pianist. Because you are your own entity, you are your own business product. And so Mm. that's what something, something that pianists have to learn is, you know, obviously once they have successfully shown that they're a phenomenal pianist, how are they also going to give back beyond that in the full package. Now, you're the president of the Concert Artists Guild in New York. Now, that's one of the two competitions that yeah, you run. So tell yeah. me more about that organisation. Well, it's it's slightly different to conventional competition like this in that when you win Concert Artists Guild, you essentially are thrown into the marketplace because you ha- we have a very robust management team um, who book concerts across the U.S., and we are, have a partnership now with Young Classical Artists Trust. Alistair is on the jury mm. with me here. And uh, so the grand prize winners of our competitions get management, actually, both in the U.S. and in, the, in Europe. And so, you know, compared to potentially winning a competition, you really have advocates um, for you that are continuing beyond maybe the momentum that you might get from mm. winning a competition. Beyond the press release, basically, yes, effectively. basically, yeah. yeah. So three, four years, sometimes longer, that they're on our roster. Interesting. And we build, you know, commercial management's where most musicians like to eventually end up on. Um, they don't have a fundraising arm. So, for example, during the pandemic, it was really awful for, you know, commercial managements because once they don't get artist bookings, you know, they don't get commission and therefore they can't sustain the organisation with the same strength and so with us with a non-profit arm we're able to support the musicians was there a particular motivation as to why you took this role on yeah I mean I never thought I would take on this role you know I didn't think of myself as an arts leader at that time but I mean I was very much an entrepreneur by starting my chamber music festival in Mm. Austria and also with roadmaps festival which was arts highlighting current events. And we did, I think, two festivals, you know, on the topic of Syria. You know, I, I realized through that work how important music and the arts are in helping people digest really complex emotions. And I was really inspired to, through taking on, you know, the leadership for Concert Skill, think and help strategize how young musicians can make more impact with their music making in ways that are, you know, beyond just turning up at a presenter, playing their concert and leaving, you know, mm. having a little bit more thought as to what their mission, each musician's mission is. Mozart now is your next choice, Tanya. Uh, we're going back to uh, a, a chamber version of a piano concerto. Tell us about this one. Well, then this one um, is definitely, you know, appropriate and written also for a string quartet by Mozart himself. And the slow movement is just one of my favorite movements. Thank you. 
slow-moving to Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 14 in E-flat, Kirchhoff 449, Claudia Aimone-Marsen and Michi Wianko, the violinists, Max Mandel playing the viola, Raman Ramakrishnan, the cellist, and double bass played by Kurt Moroki. The pianist, my guest in conversation today, Tanya Bannister. And Tanya is here to be one of the jurists on the Sydney International Piano Competition, which kicks off tonight with a gala concert. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And you're playing in it, as I understand I'm it. I'm playing. All, well, a lot of the jury are playing on that. Yes. A lot of the jury. The ones that were too slow to say no. <laughs> precisely, precisely. And you you yes. didn't notice that in the contract before. No, and, and we, were, we, were, we were all kind of laughing yesterday because these poor competitors, they're all exhausted. They, didn't yeah. have to, they couldn't practice for a few days you know, traveling, and then of they course. arrive and, um, and you know, they're jet-lagged and they have to play for the first week and and they're <laughs> live-streamed. So, so the jury were very happy that the live-stream was not part of the gala concert. I see, but this is kind of like their revenge in advance. <laughs> exactly. How long, are some of them, have they, how long have they been here, do you know? The, some competitors, of the, some of the competitors, I think most of them have been there here at least two days. Oh, is that all? Yeah, so they have, you oh. know, four or five days to kind of get... There's nothing like stress and adrenaline to though, keep you going. Mm. which is, I'm sure, something that's coursing through them right now. That's definitely the voice of experience talking there, I think. Yes. <laughs> well, one of the things you uh, take justifiable pride in is, is where you've just come from, is, is some of these festivals, the Up and Coming Music one, for instance, in Austria. Now, I, I, you did say you'd left them with bad weather, but uh, the photographs that I've seen, it looks quite glorious. I don't think I really did. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, I think one of the days out that they had, they were supposed to go up this beautiful cable car and hike in the mountains, and that was cancelled because it was raining oh. a little bit. And then it cleared up. I saw all the pictures that was beautiful so so what was the motivation to create this festival at the time you know I was in my late 20s when I created it and you know it was something that I started because I wanted to play with my friends in a gorgeous location and we I spoke to then previously the president of Concertados Guild and he said well why don't you make it into an amateur festival because people really enjoy playing with really top young musicians and so it started off as a an amateur musician festival. People came from all over the world, and now we've I've you know created a festival that is all levels, all ages, and we have some really top young musicians that come, as well as very experienced and wonderful amateur musicians. So it's a really really potpourri of different people. That's have have any weeks. of those amateurs turned pro, or hasn't it been running long enough? <laughs> no, actually, many of those amateurs were pro and decided ah. that they would earn their money other ways. Yes, tough business. Business, isn't it? Yeah. The Roadmaps Festival in New York is uh, not running at the moment, but it sort of comes and goes, I, th- I think. Exactly. Uh, and that's, that's much more than a music festival by the sound of things. We did a few topics um, on Syria for the first two festivals, and then we went on during the pandemic to talk about relevant and important things around that time with some really interesting people, including Gina McCarthy, who's now, I think, in the Biden campaign doing a lot of climate work. Um, and David Miliband, who Gosh. was the foreign secretary. So you get these people in as speakers and so on in between the music kind of thing? Um, yes. Well, what we do is we have, you know, kind of 
real topics, current issues that people talk about, and we always supplement that with uh, music and art in a way that really is giving an emotional context to everything that we're talking about. So is this part of the, the, the giving back thing that you were sort of talking about earlier, starting these festivals? Are you just having a sort of a red wine with friends one night and <laughs> before you know it? <laughs> well, I think initially the Syrian festival, you know, the Syria topic that we started was many of my uh, Syrian musician colleagues after the Trump ban um, couldn't actually, it was, the, it was the reverse. They They couldn't leave US to tour because of, visa issues and so we decided to just have a conversation about it without any political slant and uh, that's how it started and then we had some really phenomenal speakers um, at that event and you know it, it went from there and we'd the music musical part of it so it started from the musicians really wanting to make a difference in a genuine way an expensive music is well the title of it is something that I, I can't help but think of Eric Satie exactly. uh, it's a gymnopedie but not from Eric Satie tell us about this next piece well David Del Tredici is a New York based composer who um, writes lots of interesting kind of more accessible piano repertoire and this is his first gymnopedie which um, I premiered on this CD and it is reminiscent of Eric Satie's music.
David Deltredici's Gymnopédie No. 1 from his three Gymnopédie, performed by my guest in conversation today, the pianist Tanya Bannister. And Tanya is here as a jurist of the Sydney International Piano Competition, which, Tanya, if I can return to again, if I may, you'll be judging pianists for many hours each day, yes. at least in, that, in these preliminary rounds. It's quite an intense period. Is there something you can do to stay in the zone to make sure that, you know, all the pianists are getting your full attention? Well, I mean, we, the jurors were actually joking around with each other because we all have these aromatherapy oils to try and help get over jet lag. And we're going to get one that has a little bit of peppermint and then spray each other if anyone looks a little bit like they're getting a little dozy. <laughs> but no, we're uh, seriously on a serious note. No, I think we, we take this very seriously. You know, these musicians yeah, and pianists have worked so hard to be prepared to showcase their best musical selves at this competition. So we're going to be very alert. Alert. <laughs> Guarantee you. If I can go to a little bit about what it feels like to be at a piano competition yeah. for, you know, for the audience that may be going to listen to them. I mean, it's around, I think, four hours of repertoire, at least, where even if they played it through once, that's how much it would take to practice in a day. So, you know, generally pianists are wanting at least to do six, eight hours a day during this really intense time, certainly in the early rounds. And they are holding everything at a very high high level. And I think the things that are really important for being a pianist is actually being able to be quick on your feet, learning fast. And, mm. you know, in a career in music, your this piano repertoire is so huge mm. that nobody ever asks you to do the same piece. So you're always asking one concerto and then you have chamber music recital and then you have a solo recital and then another concerto. So, you know, these competitions, and Sydney is, is one of them, are really great ways of testing the stamina of a pianist. Mm. So how do you keep repertoire on a simmer? How much, how much time is like if, you, if something that you feel is, is right, I, I, I've got that one, it, it's, it's banked. How often do you have to keep coming back to it in order to keep well, it? Well, it depends on the repertoire. Some, oh, some yes, pieces are more high maintenance than others, obviously. Mm. But, you know, I think any competition benefits from a pianist having played it in recital quite a few times to give it some, you know, time to marinate. Yes, well, marinates, I suppose, I suppose a good way of putting it. Do you, have you found your own interpretations evolving over the, over the years? Oh, there's no question that mm. time, you know, is an enormous factor in helping a piece evolve. But, you know, you also have to be really coming back to the, to the music and the score and really making sure that it doesn't just, you know, simmer in the wrong way and that you're keeping it yes. fresh. Because I suppose that was my next question. Does anything go off in terms of you, you, you're so, you know it so well that the notes are under the fingers and it just it's happening Sometimes so much by autopilot. Sometimes it becomes so autopilot. Yeah, yeah you have to, we, we have to be careful. So we always Stale, have to be on, mm. on alert for keeping true to the music and the connection alive. But there's no doubt generally that it's more fun playing music you've played many times before. Yes, that you're comfortable, yeah. absolutely. Do you rely on the opinions of others to determine those sorts of things or um, is this something that a penis has to come up with all of themselves? You know, I what's think the best it's a combination of both. It's yeah. always helpful to play for colleagues and to, you know, make sure that you're not missing anything or that you're not getting into bad habits. And I think for the competitors in Sydney, for example, it's something that they have to really be careful of making sure they're not coming to the competition trying to compare themselves to others, but really trying to mm. remain true to who you are as a musician. And the times that I've done well in competitions when I've kind of blocked out everything else and really tried to just be focused on what I want to say through the music and my own voice. 
as a, someone who has played the piano a, uh, as an amateur, um, sort of my, my version of practice is woefully inadequate for what it needs to be to be in these competitions. <laughs> well, you come to Austria. I oh, come to Austria. <laughs> there you go. Um, but are you practicing when you're when you're you know polishing a piece? Are you spending those eight hours a day, kind of just going over the same three bars or, or whatever again and again and again? Because obviously, just playing something through is not really practicing, is it? Well, I mean, I think it's important. Obviously, you've got to you know do some of the muscular work to you know make sure it's secure in that way. But a lot of practice can be done just with the score away from the piano and really thinking about it and make well it's amazing how you know we ignore many of the markings that the composers put in you know that's one of the first thing the 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 sensitivity to markings in the music clues that the composer gave us that really inform you know how we you know obviously interpret the music and then give you know emotional weight to it but yeah, the composers really—they had, they had a lot to say, and so we yeah. actually have to. And look it's all at on the page. It's all on the page awesome. most of the time. Yeah. So, so when you do have a bit more time on your hands, though, because which I'm not entirely sure ever happens by the sounds of things, what do you like to do to chill out? I enjoy spending time with my family, and I'm actually have my 15 year old son coming at the, towards the end of the competition. My brother lives in Melbourne, and um, enjoy eating good food and hiking which is helpful when I go to Austria. Beautiful hiking. Well, Tanya, it's been absolutely fabulous having you here today. But before I let you go, you do have one more piece of music to introduce, and that is Clementi. Yes, these are the sonatas, not the sonatinas. Uh-huh. And and they're actually really quite difficult because they're a mixture of Beethoven, Mozart and a Chopin etude. And they are technically actually very challenging, but also texturally it's not a composer that you feel familiar with in some ways. So it was really interesting for me um, recording these and studying them because you can't quite place it when you hear it. Interesting, because I always find that sometimes this style of music, it sort of sounds easier to play than it actually is. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's exactly how it how it goes, because, you know, it has to be so clear and crystal um, crystalline. And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's really beautiful music though, Clementi. Well, Tanya Bannister, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. Thank you so much. Pleasure being here. Pianist Tanya Bannister, one of the jurists for this year's Sydney International Piano Competition, which kicks off this week. Get along to pianoplus.com.au for all the details and to get your tickets. 2MBS Fine Music Sydney is proud to be a media partner of the competition and from next Wednesday at 2pm each week there will be a program of highlights from the competition. If you can't listen in live, you can of course catch up afterwards by visiting 2MBSFineMusicSydney.com and clicking on Listen Anytime. And of course you can also find past editions of In Conversation at 2MBSFineMusicSydney.com slash In Conversation or by searching 2MBS In Conversation in your podcast app. I'm Simon Moore, thanking you for your company on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network.
to do these names again. Ashman A. Marson? No. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want it again. <laughs> oh, my God. I have to take a video of you doing this. This is my favourite part of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it again? Uh, uh, I'm on a Marsan. Oh, I'm on a Marsan. You see, no, but you see, the problem is I come up with a pronunciation and then it gets stuck. It, it gets as a sort of a first draft and then that gets stuck in your brain. I know, of course. Yeah. No, I love it. Nobody, everybody has problems with her name. That's fine. No excuse. Yeah, no, of course. Why would you know how to pronounce her name? Can you say that again? See, it's the J is silent. Claudia, I'm on a Marsan. I'm on a Marsan. Yeah, there you go. Michi Wienko. Okay. That's all right. I uh, see. It's already gone out of my. I'm an I'm an a Marson. I'm on a Marson. I'm on a Marson. Yes. It's that no. You see, it's that rhythm. I'm on a Marson. Yes, that, that's the rhythm that that was missing. Okay.